The book of 2 Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's second letter to the believers in Corinth who were being influenced by false teachers proclaiming a different gospel. As a physician cleans and bandages a wound, Paul addresses the contamination of the Corinthians' hearts and applies the healing balm of the gospel. Paul uses their real-life situations to apply gospel truths in real time. The gospel is worked into our hearts, causing us to recognize its deep implications in every dimension of life. We can trust that the Holy Spirit is working to transform our hearts, unmasking our own cultural idols, and recentering our lives around the promises of God. 2 Corinthians. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 on our way through uh, all of Paul's uh, teachings and, and writings that we're studying. And uh, I've named the sermon, it may seem like an unusual name for the sermon, but it's called Who Am I? And I think you'll understand for sure by the time we get to the end why I am asking that question. But what I want us to see at the beginning is I want us to see the passion and purpose, and I'll use another word, the focus of Paul's life. As a matter of fact, Paul had been in situations, we'll learn more about them in the next couple of weeks, but Paul had been in situations where he was sure that he probably wasn't going to survive and that he might be dying. But in the midst of all of that, he never gave up, and he never went off his focus and purpose for life. And that's why I've called the sermon, Who I Am, because I want us to see who Paul is. And when we see who Paul is and how he lived his life, especially in this passage of Scripture, I think it'll make a huge, huge difference in how we focus some of our lives. Now, keep in mind, the letter is being written to a place called Corinth, where there's a church mostly Greek-speaking uh, Christians who were used to that, uh, the, all of the Greek idols and all of that type of thing. And Paul and some others went there. And for 18 months, they formed a, a, a church and taught in that church. And he was with these people every single day. They knew him intimately. He knew them intimately. And they were incredibly impressed uh, by Paul. But he had a specific focus that I want us to just take a look at at the beginning. So I'm going to start, actually, and I put it on the screen, or you could turn to it, to chapter 4, verse 18, even though we've already studied it. And here's what it says. It says, Paul says, so we... Now, the we here is really important. He's talking about himself, of course, to the Corinthians and those that were, have been with them, but it, it's all of us. This is about us. So we... Fix our eyes, not in what is seen, but what is unseen. Now, you'll notice that I've changed the word. The word fix could be the word focus. That would be a good English translation. And I like it. So we focus, he says, our eyes. Not on what is seen, but in what is unseen. The reason? Since what is seen is temporary, passing away, but what is unseen is eternal. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he goes on to write, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, he's talking about our own bodies, and we spend a lot of time talking about that. If that's destroyed, our bodies, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. 
It's as if Paul is saying, I'm living in a shack now, but I'm going to live in this palace later, and that's what I'm looking forward to. Now, I've made up this little uh, slide here, you'll see, just to talk about it for a moment, the scene and the unseen. The scene is temporary. Everything's passing away that we can see. The unseen is eternal and spiritual. So the unseen is heaven. Is there going to be a new heaven and a new earth? Uh, God is changing everything. And then he talks about the earthly tent, which is our bodies, and we've talked about that a lot. And we're going to give up our bodies, all of us, at one point in time, and we're going to receive an eternal dwelling, not just meaning that we'll be in heaven or on the new heaven and the new earth, but meaning that we will have new eternal bodies. Our earthly tent, this tent that we live in, is physical and corruptible and definitely mortal. But our eternal home, our new heavenly bodies, are incorruptible and eternal, and they can't be blown away by the wind or torn down. We presently see each other in our physical bodies, but there's an eternal body waiting for all of us who have given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my point is that Paul was motivated. He lived his life with an eternal perspective. Paul had lived for Jesus but when he was in Corinth for a year and a half. But now Titus had reported to Paul that there were false apostles in the Corinthian church that were criticizing Paul and even, even questioning his apostleship and lifestyle, leading the people astray. Now, Let's go to chapter 5, verse 11, and make sure you're looking at it. You should be looking at it. You should have a pen in your hand or a way to make some notes if you need to. Um, since then, Paul says, verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Since that's the case, we, pers- we try to persuade others. We try to persuade others. Now, we're going to talk a lot in a minute about the fear of the Lord. What we are... Paul says, he's talking about himself and those who have been in Corinth with him, is plain to God. God knows what we are. And then he says, I hope it's also plain to your conscience, Corinthians. After all, I was among you all of that time. But it says here that we know what it is to fear the Lord. Paul feared the Lord because he knew the love of the Lord and didn't want to grieve the Lord. We must get this idea straight. It's not like this. It's not like someone saying, I'm going to put the fear of God in you. No, 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 no. That's totally different than what he's talking about. God is our Father, our loving Father. He sent his Son to die for our sins. And we have to understand what it means when Paul says the fear of the Lord. In Job chapter 28, verse 28, it reads, And he, that is God said to the human race, to mankind, humankind, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, wisdom. Now, if there's one thing that we need in the world today that we're losing completely, it's wisdom. So the fear of the Lord, God said to the human race, is wisdom, godly wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. It's all part of the fear of the Lord. If we have godly wisdom, then we won't do evil. 
In Deuteronomy from the pen of Moses, chapter 10, verse 12, Moses talking uh, to the people of Israel, God talking to the people of Israel through Moses and talking to us too. And now Israel, or church, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Here it is. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, we all think, well, we all do know a lot, especially these days. We carry around in our pockets or purses a little instrument that can tell us anything. As a matter of fact, you hear about AI these days. I've got an AI app. I hope you're not upset that I do, but it really helps. Can you help me? I don't know how to say this. <laughs> and it comes up and says all this stuff. And I put it in my own words, so I'm plagiarizing. But um, so we think we have a lot of knowledge. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Because the knowledge that counts is God's knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it my way. Proverbs 16.6, 6, uh, through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. That's a picture of the cross. And through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. There'd be a lot less evil in the world if we had the fear of the Lord. Psalms 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord, I really like this sentence, the decrees, the commands of the Lord are firm. They're never going to change. And all of them are righteous. So the fear of the Lord is our desire to please God. That is to be the focus of our lives. Now look back at the text again, verse 12. Verse 12. Paul writes, We are not trying to commend ourselves to you Corinthians again. We've already done that. But we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what have seen rather than what is in the heart. Paul is alluding to the pride these false apostles, false teachers had in their religious practices rather than what Jesus the Messiah had done for them. They were legalists. Religious legalism destroys spiritual peace. Religious legalists focus on ceremony rather than worship. Jesus was very hard on religious legalists. In Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus is talking to some religious leaders of the day. These are the words of Jesus, Matthew 23, 5. And he says, he's talking to a crowd of people, but they're all listening in. He says, everything, everything they do, they, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders, is for show. For instance, on their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes. They were called phylacteries. And they put them on their shoulder, and they, had, they were strapped them on, and they had Bible verses in them. And they put them on their foreheads, and they strapped them around their foreheads. And it was like saying, look at how you know, religious I am. Look at how 
spiritual I am, I've got the biggest box here. I've made it even bigger because I needed more verses. And then it goes on to say uh, that the extra wide prayer boxes of scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. These tassels had a religious significance that they wore on their robes, so they made them longer so they could strut around saying that they were religious people, that you better really respect us. And so Jesus is not impressed with them. So Jesus was very upset with all this, and in some of our translations, we hear Jesus say to the scribes and Pharisees of the day, woe to you, over and over again, woe to you, woe to you. It becomes like a refrain, like a verse in a song, and he's saying it to these religious leaders of the people. Uh, we read about it in Matthew 23, 25, words of Jesus. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law? What he's saying here is, woe to you teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, it's like a bowl, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Wow. <laughs> religious legalism is rules, rules, rules. Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai, but then the religious leaders added hundreds of extra points so that no one could even keep the intent of the law. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you should have either memorized it or at least come to know it intimately, one of the great sermons of Jesus. And the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is a commentary, really, on the Ten Commandments, and it's even much more than that. So do not commit adultery in the Ten Commandments becomes, in the Sermon on the Mount, words of Jesus, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your hearts and are therefore condemned. But Jesus came to take our sin on himself. In other words, he died so that when we sin, we can confess our sin, and God will cleanse us from all sin because of the cross. So Jesus died for my sin of, and you can fill in the blank. Whatever sin you think is the worst sin you ever committed, Jesus died for that sin. He took that all on himself on the cross so that I can now live free of the condemnation of sin and live a life of purity a life I could never have lived if Jesus had not risen from the dead and sent the Holy Spirit to convict me and cause me to be a repentant Christian who will soon be living in eternity with my new forever body not made by human hands. Legalism and hypocrisy go together. Beware of anyone who tries to take you back to legalistic religion without telling you about the gospel of grace, the good news about Jesus. In the book of Romans in chapter 2, there's an interesting uh, few verses here that are very relevant to what I'm saying. And they read this way, Romans 2, 28 and 29. It reads this way. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. 
No. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Now, you may think, well, I'm not Jewish, so what's, what's the point? Okay, let me read it again. Follow this time. For you're not a true Christian just because you're born of Christian parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of baptism or because you go to church even on Wednesday nights. <laughs> no, a true Christian is one whose heart is right with God. And true baptism, true worship, is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Holy Spirit that we all receive when we become a Christian and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. That's a whole different focus of life. Now, why is that important? Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Here's why. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. These are Christian believers. Unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. There's no law in the Old Testament of any kind, no ceremony of any kind, that's to be added to receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior to make it legitimate. Now, we do have baptism. We do baptisms here on Easter especially. And that's great, but baptism is something that we do as a result of the fact that we have already been fully saved. And if we never got baptized, we would still be fully saved. It's just a picture of our salvation. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, I've had legalistic Christians come to me to tell me that you cannot be saved unless you're baptized, or if you are saved... Uh, then you will keep the Sabbath. Or you cannot be saved unless you speak in tongues because it's a proof you're filled with the Spirit. So again, beware of the legalists. Beware of false prophets and teachers. When someone says to me, and I've had this happen pretty often, that God told them about something I need to do or change, then they just cut me out of the conversation. After all, if God said it to them, what can I say? But if I'm doing something the Bible says no to, then you can point to the verse or passage in Scripture that says I shouldn't do that, and then I better obey. And just to add to the sermon this morning, somebody came up to me who I love very much, has been in this church for a long time, and said, I finally have to confront you with something you said the last time you preached on this passage that was wrong. And uh, he was smiling. But he opened his Bible up, and he has all the notes from years ago and I won't tell you what the statement is, but I made a statement. I'm sure I did, or he, wouldn't, he, he wrote it down. It was totally out to lunch. can't believe it. <laughs> that was back when it was on tape, so nobody will find it. <laughs> and, and I said, what should I do? And he says, I forgive you. Forget it. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, in Acts 15, the church decided that circumcision was completely unnecessary for Christian salvation. It is now and always has been that salvation is a hard issue by faith. 
In Genesis 15, 6, it reads, And Abram, who became Abraham, believed the Lord by faith. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was saved because of his faith. Salvation is now and always has been by faith and not by ceremony or any rules. Now, look at verse 13, and we'll see what was being said of Paul by the false teachers. Verse 13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you, Corinthians. He's saying, you, you judge who's right. Now, there are many things that Paul does that they can take pride in. Paul led many of them to Christ. He was actively presenting the gospel to others. Paul was motivated by the fear of the Lord and the judgment to come. Paul wanted to please God and receive the rewards that God has for those that are faithful to him. The false teachers were saying that Paul was mad, that he was out of his mind. The same thing was said about Jesus, so Paul was in good company. Paul himself said that he was mad when he persecuted the church as a Pharisee. During a trial before the Roman procurator, Festus, Paul was on trial for his life, listening to Paul's testimony regarding the resurrection of Jesus, it's recorded in Acts 26, 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I mean, even Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters thought he was unstable. Uh, We have an incident in Mark chapter 3. They're trying to get to Jesus because he's got these big crowds and he's in this house. They can't get to them. And we read in Mark 3.21, when his family heard what was happening, this is Mary, who we just talked a lot about at Christmas, and his brothers and sisters, They tried to take Jesus away. He's out of his mind, they said. When I read this, even for the sermon, I couldn't help myself. I just sat there and thought, Mary, what were you thinking? But it's impossible to know. I mean, an angel appeared to her. We know the whole story. And, And she believed that Jesus was her Savior. But she had no... I couldn't understand what he was doing. So... You're in good company if people think that you're mad. (laughs) Before Billy Graham was the evangelist to the world, it was Dwight L. Moody. He gave up a prosperous business career to become a full-time evangelist and Sunday school teacher. People called him Crazy Moody. We need more Crazy Moody's and Mad Paul's. We don't know the names of those who criticize Moody, but his name is in a large letters, Moody Bible Institute, and lots more than that. I believe the problems in our world today all concern Jesus. Jesus is God. God created the heavens and the earth, and God, through Moses, originally wrote not only the Ten Commandments, but many other truths about life, death, and morality. It was pointed out by Kevin in a recent Wednesday night Genesis sermon on the calling of Abraham that there are absolute truths, not opinions, but truths 
that make the world we live in livable. Today, most have forgotten God and those truths. In fact, in my lifetime, I have seen the Bible removed from school curriculums, prayer disallowed at many public events and in schools. Worldwide, the persecution of Christians has become greater than at any time in history and without hardly any comment from the world's press or governments. Valerie and I were just driving in the car the other day, and we had a Christian station on, and they talked about an incident that I knew, knew quite a bit about, actually, of some Christians, a group of Christians, this is in Africa, who were murdered, killed, while they were worshiping with their, all their families, and it's happening all the time. Somebody came up to me after who was visiting our church here and has, uh, knew a lot more than even I do about all of this, and they said it's just unbelievable how many Christians in the world, in the, especially in uh, some parts of Africa, are being killed just because they're Christians. And there's no news about that. And uh, I remember when I first heard about it, <clears throat> I, I looked around the best I could through all of the media we had, and I couldn't find any comment about it any place in the regular news media, just in some Christian news media. It's incredible what's happening. And that's why we're seeing such uh, divisiveness among people today. A leader of a large country that I used to live in publicly stated one couldn't be a committed Christian and a loyal citizen of that country. Now, I've talked about this before, but when I first heard it, I was not able to find one story anywhere against this statement in any media outlets. So I assumed that it must not be true, that I must have misheard or something. But I was able to find it. Somebody asked me in the hallway after the service, so is that really true? I said, it's really true. If Christianity is true, if Jesus really is God who was crucified and buried and rose from the dead, if there's a heaven and a hell, then our message is essential and there should be an urgency by Christians to show and tell. In other words, our, our lives have to match up to what we're saying. To show and tell as many people as possible that they can be saved for eternity while living spiritually flourishing lives now and forever. It's the world that has gone crazy. And the only hope for the world is Jesus. Now look at verse 14 again. 14. Paul says, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, that's the cross, and therefore all died. Now, some people have a problem with this verse, like, all died. What's that mean? I didn't die. Yeah, you did. You did. But the, the, the verse that many of you know by heart, Galatians 2.20, tells us about it. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, that's what baptism is all about. When, you do a, when we do a baptism, the picture is, uh, you can find it in sort of the sixth chapter of, the, of Romans, uh, has a picture of it there. What happens is when the person goes under the water, they're representing the fact that Jesus died and was buried in a grave. 
And when we come out of the water, we are representing the new life that we now have. It's an affirmation of what has already happened to us. And Jesus came out of the grave and had a new life, and his body was, uh, looked the same but was not the same, <laughs> like our new bodies will be. And so now we, when we come up out of, that, out, out of baptism after we're saved, uh, the baptism says now we are now able to live a new life until we get our new bodies, until we're in the new heaven and the new earth. So Paul was not only motivated by the fear of the Lord, but also because of the love of the Lord. The love of Christ is pictured for us in Jesus. Think about the love of Christ. There was no reason why he should have come to earth, but he did. There was nothing in it for him. It was a completely selfless act. We've just gone through Christmas, and I love everything about Christmas, especially when it's over. <laughs> Nevertheless, I really, I became a Christian while I was a stockbroker, and I can remember one day just thinking about this, and it made me laugh a little bit. So here we are. It's Christmas time. I was doing business all over the world. We even had offices at that time in China and England and all of these places. So we were doing business everywhere. And uh, at Christmas time, the, all of that stops. Uh, even the atheistic countries stop when it comes to the, uh, all of the trading and all of this thing that goes on. It just stops. So one man who many don't believe in lived on this earth and died, and they say he rose from the dead, and because he was even born, it stops the whole world uh, playing with the, mo the number one idol in the world, <laughs> our money, our security. And I just thought that that was really something because I spent a lot of time trying to prove Jesus wasn't God. The word for compel in this verse has two meanings. It can mean to constrain, for Christ's love constrains me. In other words, the love of Christ keeps me from doing those things that would displease God. It also means to compel, to willingly give my all for Jesus. Christ died for everybody. His death was sufficient for every person in the world to be saved, but it's a gift that must be received, and if not received, then the saving death becomes useless. So verse 15, as we'll see, makes the point that we must live our lives for him and not for ourselves because he died and rose from the dead. We've studied this, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, thoroughly. So you're well aware of the verse, these two verses. Paul says, do you not know? And you, you know that he's saying, you know this, don't you? What he's really saying, you can feel the frustration. He's saying to the Corinthians, what is wrong with you? I mean, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Come on. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Or the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. Why? That we might live through him. So Jesus died that we might live. I mean really live. Live the life that God designed us to live. So here we are, verse 15. And he died for all 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves at the conference on the weekend with, with uh, Nicholas, Dr. Nicholas, um, Ellen. Uh, he talked about self-love. It was great the way he talked about it because it is our biggest problem. We do love ourselves too much. We really do. And uh, for some reason, uh, in some reading I've been seeing and a few things I've seen on TV, I've heard a lot of it. You've got to forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Come on, you can't forgive yourself. God's already forgiven you. We need to accept that forgiveness. So for he died for those who live, who should no longer live for themselves, but instead, new focus, live for him who died for them and was raised again. In 1858... Frances Ridley Havergal, she saw a picture of the crucifixion on a wall with the words under it, I did this for thee, what hast thou done for me? So quickly she took a piece of paper and she wrote a poem based on that motto, but she was not satisfied with it. So she literally threw the paper into a fire that was burning, fireplace, and the paper blew out uh, and was saved. And later, her father encouraged her to publish the, the verse, so it became a hymn, a very popular hymn some time ago. Here's part of the hymn. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might transform on wrong. It's actually written wrong here, and I've been corrected from the last service. Let me start again. And it's corrected on the screen, I'm sure. I give my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? The love God has for me should cause my heart to be in fire for him. This sentiment has been expressed famously by many heroes and martyrs of the faith. The one I thought of right away, 1956, 28 years old, Jim Elliott went to the mission field to the Aka Indians. They made a movie of it and books written about him. He had a bunch of friends with him too. He had his wife and his child. And while he was trying to reach the Aka Indians, uh, he was killed along with some other men that were with him. And so he's well known for this phrase, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, I'm not a poetic person, but I often read poems and old hymns to try and understand the heart of love such words were written with. I find myself asking God to kindle that kind of love in my heart. So Paul goes on to say in verse 16, he says, so from now on, we, he's talking about himself here, but, but this is for all of us. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now, you see, Paul originally, as a Pharisee, saw Jesus as the head of a false religion. But on the road to Damascus, he came to see Jesus as God, the Savior of mankind. 
Paul's most common name for Jesus was Lord and Savior. We also must see all people differently than ever before. Galatians 3.28, I think I've quoted it more than almost any verse through this time through Paul's writings. There is, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. doesn't matter what ethnic background you have. There's no longer slave or free. It doesn't matter what your status is in life. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, if you're a man or a woman. For you are all, we are all one in Christ, whose name is Jesus, the Messiah who saves. Oh, how I wish we understand this verse in our divided world these days. The divisions we have cause us to be separated from people so that they won't hear the gospel from us. I wish we really understood that. You see, people are not Republicans or Democrats. They're not rich or poor. They're not important or unimportant. They're not white or black or whatever. They're not lawyers or doctors or mechanics or homemakers. People are lost sinners who need a Savior. They are sheep without a shepherd. They are eternally condemned because of sin. Therefore, we must see others as spiritual eyes and be willing to live for Jesus and not ourselves, be willing to live for others and the showing and telling of the gospel. There should be nothing about us that we can do something about uh, that would keep people not wanting to talk to us about the things of the gospel. So our behavior and what we represent publicly uh, is very important because the most important representation is how we represent Jesus. So we must learn to love others in the same way Jesus loved us. This should affect every relationship we have on earth. Now look at verse 17. This is one of the most famous verses in Paul's writings. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creations come. That's actually a really good translation, by the way. I've seen all kinds of different ways of translating it, but if, it, if I just read the Greek, it, it just says there, new creation. What does that mean? Well, it means that we've been changed. If we're in Christ, it means that we've confessed that we're sinners. We've uh, received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when that happens, we're supernaturally changed like we're recreated. That's why we use the word born again. Jesus used that word. It's as if we're a different person altogether. The old is gone, and the new is here. That's an amazing thing. And we must allow God, we have to cooperate with the Spirit of God and let him take away our prejudices and all of those things. And I'm not talking about when I say, today you say prejudice, oh, you're thinking of you know, racial prejudice. No, no, no. Prejudices. Things that we think, oh, this is so important to me, but is it important enough to, can you, are there people you can't reach now because you make that such a big deal? So, you know, I love C.S. Lewis's writing, so here we go again. Listen very carefully to this. The Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much, some percentage of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. <laughs> no half measures are any good. I, I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Now, my 
Dennis, she would love that because she charges a lot to take him out. And uh, hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit, and I'll give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Wow. That's just fantastic. Uh, the man who led me to the Lord indirectly, Don Hill, London, Ontario, one of the richer people in, the, in that area. I know him intimately. I still talk to him on the phone from time to time. He's in his 90s, and he can still beat almost anybody else in golf. But uh, I can't tell you anything about some of the things that others think. I have no idea where he's at. I don't know when it comes to politics and stuff. And we've never, I never, we wouldn't even think about talking that because he cannot talk to somebody without talking about the Lord. And there's so many people in London, Ontario, and literally around the world who become Christians because he represented Christ wherever he went. He had a big platform because of his wealth. And because of the fact that he's one of, he, he was an incredible golfer and uh, played in the best golf courses, uh, but he always introduced people to Jesus. Every place we went, I've traveled with him on airplanes. The people, he, he would ask to have a middle seat so he could talk to the people on both sides of him. <laughs> and at one time we were getting a thing and he asked if we could be, now this is a long time ago. He asked the girl, could you put us in the smoking section? We don't smoke. But we find the people that smoke don't seem to know as much as we want them to know about the Lord. He literally said that to the agent. He used to buy the tickets at the counter as he had just given her a little Bible and, and uh, asked her. He said, I've got a problem with this verse. He did this all the time. Uh, can you read that? I, I'm not sure what it means. And the girl would look, for God so loved the world. Uh, you know, and I, I used to do that, but I got over it. No, I... Anyhow, I couldn't help myself there because he's such a... Uh, when I think of him, I want to be like him. I want to be able to tell people about Jesus, no matter who they are. Paul changed from a persecutor, a religious terrorist, to a proclaimer. He changed from a hater of Christians and a lover of self to a lover of all people, even his enemies, for whom Christ died. Now look at verse 18. All this, everything I've said, Paul said, is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now here's the question. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Well, verses 19 to 21 tell us, so we'll just read them. Here it is. Here's the answer. Look in your Bibles. The God... The ministry of reconciliation is that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, the Messiah, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when I do something stupid, usually once or twice a day, he looks down and says, look at that, but all I can see is God's righteousness. It's, It's hard to even believe if you really grasp it. So God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, and if anybody is to be reconciled, it will only be if we do something about it. We are ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors. Dr. Ellen at the conference, in our HOPE conference, uh, gave us an outline of what we are when we become Christians. I call it DAB. We all need to be a DAB, D-A-B, a DAB. And he explained it. But there's, it's just three words. DAB is disciples. We're disciples. We're ambassadors. And we're builders. So a three-point sermon in a minute. Verse 1, or point 1, we are disciples who are to be useful for Christ by living out the plans prepared for us. Two, we are to be ambassadors for Jesus. Three, we're to be builders, building up one another by using our gifts in the church. Now, we can't do any of that by just watching services. There might be a reason why somebody can't come to church, but mostly there isn't. We must be an active part of the body of Christ, the church, which is the will of God, and he will always empower us to do what he requires of us, as it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, where we're saved by grace, not by faith and grace and all of that, but that God has prepared something for us to do. And then he's going to reward us for what he did through us. That's absolutely incredible. An ambassador for the United States is an American in a foreign land. We are to be like strangers in this world. It should always be a bit uncomfortable for us to be in the world. R.V. Tasker in his commentary writes, and this is important, ambassadors engaged upon human affairs are chosen especially for their tact, their dignity, and their courtesy, and because they are gifted with persuasive powers. The ambassadors for Christ should show the same characteristics. They must never try to bludgeon men and women into the kingdom of God, but must speak the truth in love by gentleness and meekness of Christ. You see, an ambassador does not speak for his or her own name, not in his name. If you're an ambassador, you don't speak in your name. An ambassador does not act on their own authority. Ambassadors do not convey their own opinions. We speak with the authority of Jesus himself. We represent the kingdom of heaven on earth. So searching question, how am I representing the kingdom of God? That's a good question. We need to answer it. Or another question, what impression am I making on others by the fulfillment of my ambassadorship? So final two verses and we're done. Chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, I just feel the... As God's co-workers, we urge you, he says, not to receive God's grace in vain. Now, he says the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we're, he urges us to give ourselves as a living sacrifice. He could have said command. He didn't. 
No, no, we're not under command that way. We are responsible to be the representatives that God is making us into consistently. And he says, so as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What's the word vain mean? It means without result. It means empty. It means not life-changing. We need to cooperate with God's working in us so that we can become this way. And uh, the, the, imagine, here's a good image. Imagine parents sacrificing their lives for the sake of their children. And then the children take all the advantages given them by their parents but end up living a life of dissipation, of evil, and totally dishonoring everything their parents had done for them. It happens all the time. It's very painful for parents, as many of us know. That is how God feels when he has done so much for us and we just throw it away, refusing to live for him, but instead waste our lives living for ourselves and our own selfish desires. In 2 Corinthians 6.2, the last verse, I put it on the screen in the New Living Translation because I like the way they do it. So it's on the screen here. For God says, at just the right time, Pastor Carl, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Today doesn't mean Sunday, Monday, Wednesday. It's talking about a period of time, the day that we live in. We live in the day of salvation until Jesus comes again or we go. So this is the day. The most important priority in our lives should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need a sense of joyful urgency. Paul is saying that that this time we are presently living in is the day of salvation, the right time. Don't miss it, but make the most of it. God loved the world, but was disappointed in how those living in the world were living. So he sent Jesus to die as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. God didn't condemn Jesus so we could live. He condemned the sin that Jesus the Messiah took on himself so that we could be enabled now to live the life that God originally created in us in his image to live. That's the answer to the name I gave the sermon, Who Am I? I'm a child of God with a message from God that can change people's lives and even the direction of the world. And I want everybody to hear the message of reconciliation. I'm just going to end with a popular Christian song that I was... uh, As a matter of fact, I mentioned this when we were having a meal on on Wednesday night to the people at our table were eating together, and I mentioned that I was going to use this song, and I said that I might even sing it. And people even listening, just half listening... It was like it was planned. It was like a chorus. No, don't sing it. (laughs) So I was very depressed, but I'm not going to sing it. But we were going along, and they were listening to a Christian radio station and the music, and this is a song I like to sing in the car. And it's uh, done by Casting Crowns, Matthew West. And here's the main sentence. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. And here are just a few words that he sings. 
Ever since you rescued me, you gave my heart a song to sing. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. Everybody's got a purpose. So when I hear the devil start talking to me, saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. And then this is the other line that I really like in the song. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to be like that. Help us to get rid of all of our, to, to forget about our prejudices and to learn to just live a life so sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ that many people will ask about why are you so happy or so hopeful or whatever. And we'll be able to tell them. They may be doing things we don't like, but they don't even know what they're doing without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, help us to be people who live lives sold out completely for Jesus so that even the world could be changed. There really is no other hope. And I pray that you'll continue to help us as a church to be one another people, to love one another, to be meeting together like we're doing now and did in the previous service and even on the campus around us. There's other meetings going on and there's churches all over the world really, but all over Sarasota for sure, some very good ones who are meeting so that other people can know about Jesus, so they can learn to grow and be built up and go out into the world and tell everybody about Jesus. So make us the reality of that song, but more importantly, the reality of what the scriptures have to say about the ministry of reconciliation. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here or online that doesn't know Jesus yet, please, we don't know when today will be over. We don't know the Lord could come today. Or it might be a long time from now, but we've only got one life to live, and we don't know for sure how long we're going to live it. We're hoping, all of us, that we'll be alive tomorrow, but we don't know. And so I just pray that if you have never given your life to Jesus, you would do that by just simply praying and saying, Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner. I know that you're the Savior of the world. I thank you that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for my sin. Please come into my life and change me, and he will. And then you need to become part of a local expression of the church where you can be discipled and you can be helping others. In Jesus' name, amen.